Well, hello everyone and welcome to Health Chats Among Friends. This is Deidre Kendry. I'm your nurse advocate, educator, and navigator. And tonight I have the true pleasure and honor of speaking with Ernice Williams and Sue Wallace. Sue Wallace is gonna be listening in with us as a co-host and Ernice is going to, she's in New York City, everyone. So I am super excited to hear her perspective of during COVID. But before we get into that, I'm gonna let her tell you a little bit about herself, Ernice. Awesome. Thank you so much. So yes, I'm Ernie Williams. I am a nurse. I've been a nurse for 14 years. Although I am also an attorney, I always consider myself a nurse first, um, just because of my heart and what I know I've been called to do. But being an attorney definitely has its perks as a nurse. Um, and I've been in healthcare. I've worked in almost every department in inpatient, outpatient, home hospice. So I've lots of healthcare experience. Um, over the last year, I worked in the hospitals in New York City and in Maryland um, because of the pandemic, which gave me a very unique view into um, all the things that many of us know and experience of the stress of healthcare, but it definitely was exacerbated. And I think what we experienced um, in this last year is what advocates, most advocates have been talking about for many years that we knew was gonna happen if this pandemic you know, ever happened, right? So um, being an attorney gives me a different perspective as to healthcare and how we manage healthcare. Because for me, my perspective is to protect the patient and the provider, which can be difficult. And especially during a pandemic where everyone's very much stressed and short staffed. So uh, that's kind of a little bit about me and, and what I do. Um, I help healthcare providers protect their license through helping them with business um, support starting businesses, protecting their businesses, as well as creating courses to help educate healthcare providers who are in direct patient care. So somebody asked me, when do I sleep? When do you sleep? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't sleep. I also have two small kids, but I said that tonight I'm going to try to say I um, am, am always listening to books to try to learn and a book was basically saying if you have more than three priorities in a day you have no priorities and so I need to prioritize getting to bed <laughs> which is difficult when you're managing so many different things well goodness you wear so many different hats and so much we yeah. could talk about because we could have you back again and again um, yeah. but tonight I wanted to hone in on your hat of working as a nurse in the trenches, in the hospital during this season of COVID. And, and you did yeah. mention before how we were already saying that we were short-staffed and now it's just extubated now because of COVID. So mm -hmm. I wanna get your uh, perspective personally and professionally of what you felt like or, or feeling like during working in the hospital. Yeah, so I think, you know, uh, last year I was working in a clinic we went from seeing hundreds and hundreds of patients a day to seeing like no patients. And it was very weird to go to work and to not take care of patients. Um, and then every single day, the governor was sending out messages and, and coming on TV saying, we need people, we need nurses, we're so short staffed. And so I was like, you know, I'm healthy. My kids are healthy. My family's healthy. And I was like, you know, I could work in the hospital. And the thought of getting COVID, of course, was really scary. And this was so early on where we didn't know how it was going to impact anyone if you were going to actually survive from it but I, I took the chance of saying I'm, I'm healthy enough I could probably survive it so 
Um, I quit my job in the clinic. I went to work in a hospital, um, uh, one of the bigger healthcare systems here in New York City. And those first few weeks were probably some of the scariest weeks I've ever had in my entire life. Like I'm a very brave person. And I think most people who work in healthcare, you have to be because you just never know what you're going to experience when you get to work. But the chaos and the stress and the grief um, and just not knowing what to do every single day, there was a new change. The CDC said, you don't need a mask. And CDC says, you do need a mask. And CDC says, well, you need an N95 mask. And now it's like, any, usually we would throw, anytime you come out of a room, whatever you have on goes in the trash, N95, regular mask, PPE, whatever. But the fact that now we're reusing it, which then essentially contamin is contaminated mm -hmm. stuff that you're putting back on, um, was very scary for any of us who were knowing like this is dangerous. And then people began to get sick. So the staff began to get sick. Um, the hospital I was at was one of the first places where um, some of the first patients were, so some of their staff got it very early on, and at that time, we didn't know what to do, and then once some of their staff members actually passed away, the anger and the bitterness and the stress of that, and still trying to take care of people, it was a lot. It was, I think, more than we, nobody could have expected or predicted any of that, um, and so I think those first few weeks were were scary and then it went from we're taking care of all of these patients to like there's nobody here like um oh, wow. right it was like you know all elective surgeries were canceled all any type of outpatient procedure was canceled and so now you're really just stuck with people who either were recovering from COVID or were coming in with COVID um and so essentially the hospital, some some units became empty. Like if you weren't in the ICU or you weren't actively dying from COVID, there was nobody there to take care of. And so my first assignment that I was at, I was canceled because the hospital was empty. And then um, I went to another assignment where it was busy and things started to clear up, but it was still very chaotic because now people are coming back to the hospital who had delayed their care. So, you know, I was working on an oncology unit. Those patients oh, are usually in and out of the yes. hospital often. Oh. They were so scared to come in. Now they're coming back and their numbers were so bad. And so now we're just, you know, blood and plasma. And it was just, it was a lot. It was so many things. So I think, you know, when I think towards the end of the summer last year, when things kind of started to settle down and all of our adrenaline began to settle, nurses began to feel very angry. We felt very much... Um, we, you know, nobody, like a hero is someone who can actually protect themselves from something bad happening to others. And so you don't necessarily feel like a hero when people are dying, when your, your colleagues are not, you know, mentally or physically well. Um, and so it was a lot of anger, a lot of bitterness, a lot of trauma that has definitely been unaddressed with very little in-house support. So all the social workers, all the psychiatrists, all of the mental health workers are working from home, yeah. but all of the staff who actually need their support are on the units with no, with no one to support them. So it was, it has been, and it still continues to be a very difficult time. And I think people are very much lost at what to do next and to have to rectify what happened. I don't think any organization or leadership is, has apologized to healthcare workers, has spoken up and spoken out about some of the, the missteps in the beginning that essentially made people sick. 
um, nobody's taking responsibility or accountability from that. And I think that is probably dealing, like it's like secondary trauma to some people who are already traumatized. So it's definitely lots of healing that needs to be done as well as a, like uh, a, just kind of a new plan of how do we move forward from such a uh, long-standing traumatic event. Right, right. Wow, that is powerful. Um, I'm so glad that you are sharing your personal perspective because I feel like sometimes as nurses or healthcare professionals, they forget we're human. Mm-hmm. Uh, they forget that we go through emotions of um, fear and anxiety and loss mm-hmm. and resentment and, mm-hmm. you know, it takes courage to do what we do. Yeah. But I think now that we've gone through this season of COVID and we're learning a little bit more, but we still got a long way to go mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. as far as the respect that yeah. we don't get. Yeah, definitely. You know, definitely. Um, but I really commend you from your for your service because I haven't been at the best side since 2016. And I applaud you because I wasn't going back. <laughs> I wasn't going back because it's just like mm-hmm. it was already so bad working there without COVID, shorthanded, the um, inconsideration of administration, you know, yeah. just not caring and mm-hmm. and this dangerous, you know, for your license. Um, I'm not an attorney, but I was a legal nurse consultant. So I did get to sit on a few depositions and things like that. And the hospitals, I'm sorry. They'll throw you under the bus. They will. They will. They will. And you and I could have a whole nother chat about how nurses really need to protect their license. Mm -hmm. But I want to go back to you and because you have a family also. Mm-hmm. So what did your family say when you first chose to go back into the hospital? Yeah, so I got COVID when I was still working in the clinic. Um, and my husband and I, like, I knew I had it, but they still weren't testing. I just lost my sense of taste and smell. Um, and I kept trying to just act as if I didn't have it. Right? Like, I just kept trying to work out and eat and things like that. And so um, at that point, I was like, well, I already had it. So... <laughs> what's what's there to lose um and my husband was very much supportive like you know this is something you want to do I'm going to support you um and like you my older son kind of understood and then when I would come home I'm like don't touch me I gotta get out of my clothes I gotta shower Mm -hmm. taking off everything at the door Uh, so they kind of got used to that experience um but it was definitely I think just a decision that we had to make as a family you know you never want to sit somewhere and say shoulda coulda woulda right um and so it was just you know as a family we, my husband and I decided it was just worth taking the chance to do it because it's something I said I wanted to do and he knows how I am like if I don't do it then I would just be sitting in regret like wishing mm-hmm. that I did so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah wow so you can see both it's so it's some it's something else working in Europe position because when I got my certification as a legal nurse consultant I looked at stuff a whole lot differently right right. you know because you're looking at both sides you're looking at the patient side aspect Mm -hmm. and you're looking at the caregiver aspect Mm -hmm. and I can't help it everything I look at I'm like okay legally okay Mm. Uh. (laughs) it's just you analyze everything you do and and Mm -hmm. so did COVID kind of 
heighten that fear of, you know, oh, litigation? Did it did it kind of heighten that at all? I think, you know, there was like every day was a new rule. So for a few weeks, it was skeleton chart and which was like just mm-hmm. vitals. <laughs> like as long as we had a set of vitals in for the shift, you know, you didn't have to do Q2 hour turns. You didn't have to document this. You didn't have to document that. For me, I was like, I'm never going to play with skeleton chart. And no, thank you. Right. right because right. It, if you're ever in a situation where there are questions, you don't have anything. You don't have documentation to even remember that patient that you care for, you're never mm-hmm. going to remember. Um, so I thought that was very interesting that they went to that that form of charting. And then it was like a few weeks later, they're like, oh no, now we're regular charting, but everybody didn't get the same thing. So some people were still skeleton charting. So, oh um, you know, and then it was like, you couldn't take the machines in the room. So you were having to get all your medication, scan the patient's armband outside of the room, then take the medication in the room. You know, so you just start taking shortcuts that could then lead to errors, right? Um, And and I think for me, that's what kind of got scary. I'm like, we're moving in a way that we never moved before, regardless of if we're short-staffed or not. You know, in that instance, we weren't because we had, it was a lot of travelers, there were a lot of travelers there, but I was just like, I hope we don't take up these bad habits and take them with us forever. Right. You know, not, not, um, you know, doing our five rights and not making sure that the patient understands what medication that they're taking. There were huge language barriers. You know, there Mm -hmm. was just so many things happening. And so, um, you know, being in a situation where now it was just changes every single day. It was just, it felt very dangerous. They said like, oh, you don't have to worry about being sued, but New York just lifted that ban for nursing homes a few weeks ago. So we don't know what's going to happen, what type of litigation is going to come out of that. Um, And based on what I know that it happened in New York, if people are allowed to sue, it's going to be pretty extensive. Oh my, 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 my. Wow. So because New York, you guys were hit really, really hard uh, with it. You know, Texas is big and we're spread out. So I've doubt we were hit as hard we well you know what we were number two for a little while there on the according to the cdc but oh my goodness i can't imagine the subways and you know when it was really in the midst of it where it's just like a ghost town oh yeah things emptied out really quickly it was actually scary scary to get on the train when nobody's on the train because now you're like you're on the train by yourself which is unheard of usually you know people start going to work 3 30 4 30 in the morning in this area to get downtown especially like construction workers and mta workers and so to see nobody on the train or you know just out and about it definitely was really scary um and then as things started to pick back up now you're like oh my god it's a lot of people in here like <laughs> so you kind of didn't want you don't want it to be empty you don't want it to be full but yeah that's definitely been uh, like a challenge for for the transportation system, trying to stay open for the people who need to get to work, but not really running at full capacity, which meant they were just losing, you know, a lot of money. So yeah, that part was uh, definitely challenging as well, just kind of navigating being in the city. Wow. Bernice, can I, could I interject something or ask a question? Yeah, okay. uh, since we've been through the pandemic, I mean, we are, we're still in it, but we're, it seems like we're getting a little bit on the other side of it. Uh, do you think that we have learned uh, that 
it's possible. And so we do need to set up standards of care about what we would do were we faced with something like this again. I, I definitely think that there are lots of lessons learned. Do I think that people are actually implementing um, or taking action on those lessons? I don't think so. Um, so for example, you know, nurses don't have to be tested. If you work in the hospital, you, you never, you could have gone ye a whole year without ever being tested. And a nursing home, they're testing one, two, two, sometimes three times a week, mm -hmm. trying to protect the patients. And so, oh, wow. you know, it's like, how can those who are taking care of the critically ill not be tested at all, not even once mm -hmm. a month? And then oh, those who wow. are taking care of patients in the nursing homes are tested. And so we may be the ones who are actually spreading the disease and not even realizing it. Uh, so I think that that is one thing that I've noticed that I think is a huge challenge and a big issue, mm. um, as well as, you know, the miseducation and the misunderstanding about what the vaccine does and who should be taking the vaccine and how many people we need to take the vaccine for things to actually move forward. Um, I, I just think that there, there are a lot of lessons that have, we have learned but the actual implementation of change has not happened, is not happening um, as far as supporting frontline workers and staff in healthcare, in the healthcare setting, not happening. Um, there's very little mental health support, which I think is the number one thing that healthcare workers need and not a hotline, Absolutely. not somewhere where you have to make phone calls. Mm -hmm. They need therapists on the units, on the floors, being able to provide day shifts and night shifts, mm -hmm. actual um, hands-on support and that that is not happening you know this is nurses week and it's kind of like okay maybe we're celebrating maybe we're not you know mm -hmm. there's still no appreciation for the sacrifice of what CNAs and nurses and janitors mm -hmm. every person and who works on the front line yeah housekeeping who had to go in there and clean those rooms like there's not enough appreciation and respect for that and so I think that that is a huge challenge when you go through such a traumatic situation and everybody kind of moves forward as normal. I think that's very challenging for a lot of people. Right. That was a great question, Sue. Great question. You know, I, I hope, you know, moving forward that we do learn something about compassion yeah. and caring and uh, consideration for fellow man, period. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I've had so many different conversations because I still do home health nursing. And uh, my patients are basically, they don't have an immune system. They weren't born with an immune system. They have CIDP or something like that. You know, I have one or two that are on a ventilator. They will be on the ventilator all their life. So when people are saying, well, I'm not going to wear the mask and I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to let government try. It's not about that. It gets me so upset. It's not about that. It's about that person in front of you. Who are they going to be in contact with later on? Mm -hmm. And if that person that they're going to be in contact with, do they have an immune system? Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, so to me, it's all about, you know, consideration for your fellow man. I mean, mm -hmm. whew, we can go on and on about, you know, the yeah. value of fellow man and being considerate and kind and understanding the why and, yeah. um, but I want to get back to you about, you know, you being such an awesome nurse to go back into the hospital set, setting. It's because it was almost like I equated with a battlefield. Yeah. 
you know, with a soldier because mm-hmm. only nurses can do what nurses can do. Right. right? Yeah. And um, it comes a time when we got to stand up together as nurses and say, no, enough is enough. We, mm-hmm. we deserve more respect and more consideration and more, you know, um, appreciation. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And anybody in the healthcare field, I don't want to negate housekeeping and um, food services and mm-hmm. the wonderful CNAs. I love my CNAs. I love them, love them, love them. And um, the doctors as well, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but anybody who is, you know, in the trenches caring for other people, because I can't imagine the PTSD that people are going to have to deal with, you know. Definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, uh, Arnise, so I wanted to uh, also ask you for the sake of time. So you, you mentioned you were an attorney. And yeah. so what drove you to go ahead and just become an attorney? Yeah, so I knew that I, when I finished nursing school, that I was going to get an advanced degree. Um, And of course, people were talking about becoming CRNAs and nurse practitioners, and I wasn't quite interested in going that route. I definitely wanted to add value to the profession, but just wanted to be, just do something different. Um, At first, I wanted a public health degree, but I thought getting a law degree, I could do public policy as well as potentially legal work, um, and I wouldn't necessarily have to pigeonhole myself just into public policy, and so I decided to go back and get a law degree and got into law school, was exposed to so many different areas of law that I never thought about, like housing law, um, and even, you know, civil rights issues at the time when I was in law school, Trayvon Martin uh, was killed, and Mike Brown was killed, and so there were so many conversations about civil rights and civil unrest, and uh, you know, First Amendment rights, and what do people have the right to do and not to do? Um, and so, I think for me, it really opened my eyes to the depths of injustices in this country and systemic oppression, and how, in so many different ways, if you are born in the wrong zip code, how different your life can be. Um, And I think in times of growing up, sometimes I'm like, well, you know, as long as you have X, Y, and Z, your outcome and your experience should be this. But in reality, you one wrong decision can ruin your life forever. And once you're in the system, it's very difficult to come out. Uh, If you're ever dependent on the system, it's very difficult to get out of that. Because if you make $10 more, you no longer have access to all these services, but yet you still don't make enough to afford um, you know, the full cost of child care or the full cost of rent, especially in a city like New York City. So, you know, there's many people who I will work with and they're like, if I work any overtime, I no longer qualify for housing and I no longer qualify for child care. And then I can't afford to put my t- child in daycare because it's $1,500 a week, right? And so we don't think about those things. We say, well, why would somebody want to be on welfare for their whole life? Or why would somebody want to live in this neighborhood? And the reality is they're stuck. They don't know how to make that much money yeah, to get yeah. above what yeah. they're making. And the more money they make, they just fall into this gap of not being able to receive any services. So, um, you know, you get exposure to that in law school. I think sometimes people think it's all just about like book learning, but you really get to understand systems and you get to understand how things work in this country and who is essentially running things in a way that you you never would have understood if you don't get that legal perspective. Right. Um, and so it just was challenging for me to say, okay, how can I um, put myself in a situation where I can 
help not just uh, the people who I like, like my healthcare providers, but also patients. Because even with healthcare, the insurance companies are essentially running. Um, the insurance companies are running healthcare. It's not necessarily essentially nurses or doctors um, or, or patients. It's really whatever the insurance company says is what we have to do to kind of get things paid for or mm-hmm. to get things done. And so some of the challenges are one, not taking on every issue, right? Because in some instances, like, okay, I want to work in civil rights and I want to work in housing and I want to help all these different people. But in reality, I had to find my lane and stay in it and really be comfortable with knowing, okay, if I can help the people that I'm sitting here to help, then that's okay, because somebody else has to do the work of helping all these other people. So um, yeah, law school has definitely been, it was eye-opening. It was definitely life-changing for me. Uh, Met some amazing people. I got to clerk um, um, in DC with a judge who I just adored. Here's some very good cases and really get to learn about the, the court of appeal system and how people appeal their cases and what that looks like for them. It is not fun, <laughs> um, very intense, um, but it, it was a good opportunity, very eye-opening. So when I talk to healthcare providers about protecting their license or about any of the things from the legal perspective, I'm always trying to get people to understand it's not just about how you feel about something, it's about how the law is written. And you have to respect that. You have to fall within line and figure out how you can navigate life through these rules. I think people want to say, well, I want to do X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, I understand you want to document non-compliant, but what I'm telling you is if you document that, instead of documenting the details, you miss on opportunity to actually educate your patient and protect yourself, right? And so it's hard for people when they start to hear me talk about some of these things, so they just feel like, well, this is what everyone is doing. And I'm like, that's fine. But when you're called to the table, either right. through a subpoena or, you know, reported to the board, all you're going to have is your documentation. Absolutely. You're not going to have a witness. You're not going to have anybody being able to speak up for you. Mm-hmm. You're not going to have your manager. You're not going to have a policy. All they're going to ask you is what did you do and what did you document? And so trying to get that across to people can sometimes be difficult because they just aren't used to hearing that kind of conversation. They're not hearing it in school. They're not hearing it in orientation. They're not hearing it from the hospital staff. Um, and so it's like something new. And it's very, of course, when you hear something new, you kind of want to push back. And I just kind of continue to tell people, like, I'm, I'm telling you what's in your best interest because I know from my own perspective, I have to do what's best to protect myself because if I'm ever put in front of the board, nobody's going to be there to help stand right. behind me. It's going to be me and whoever I hire to help me get off uh, you know, to protect my license and to protect my livelihood. Well, you are a true hero. And I thank you and commend you for your service. And it's a pleasure to know you and to uh, learn from you. So we will definitely have to have you back and we get yeah. have you back a few times because <laughs> there's yes. so much that we but can talk about. talk about. Yes. I learned a lot myself, so uh, it's, uh, I, I commend you also, um, and I think that it's, it's in anything in the healthcare field, it's about documentation. Uh, I learned that because I'm in a, I was in a new industry, at least in Texas, and mm-hmm. so uh, we had to learn how to do the documentation also, and uh, I don't I don't mean we've mastered it, but we have. It's, we've come a long way since we got licensed in 2003. Uh, but we need people like you that really understand both sides of it, and 
specifically for nurses. So I uh, just uh, I think you're doing a tremendous job in, in providing wonderful service. So thank you so much. Keep going. <laughs> All right, ladies. So uh, Arnise, if someone wanted to get in touch with you, learn more about you, your practice, what you do for the community, what is the best way for them to reach you? Yeah, so you can check me out on my website. It's www.iwilliamslaw.com. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, on all social media profiles under your nurse lawyer. If you type that in, um, you can find me there. But my website also has all that information. Wonderful. Well, you are my nurse lawyer. Yes. So thank you again for tonight. Thank you um, and thank you everyone for tuning in to Health Chats Among Friends, where we bring you reputable resources from your local communities. Tune in next time for another amazing chat.